It was a Thursday evening, and the fingery shadows of darkness were creeping in. The growing mood around the table was one of fear and foreboding, and that was beginning to stifle the conversation that had gone back and forth on topics such as servanthood and love, betrayal, denial, death, departure, and desertion. And into this sorrowful situation, a Jewish carpenter offers his final words to those closest to him before he would be arrested and crucified. The last words that someone shares with you are often some of the most precious that you will hear, doubly so when they provide encouragement and comfort and assurance to troubled hearts. And our one verse wonder today is the last words of Jesus that were directed to his disciples, the last sentence of what is known as the farewell discourse, which runs from John 14 to the end of John 16. So if you can just picture it, on this Thursday night, just as Jesus is bracing himself to go to the cross, and he does that by looking to the joy that was set before him, the joy that would await him on the other side, as Hebrews 12 tells us, just as he is in ready to endure the ordeal that awaits him, he directs his little band of, his little band of followers beyond the horizon of, what would, uh, of the darkness that would threaten to engulf them to the light and the joy and the hope and the certainty that lay on the other side of the cross for them too. And John 16, verse 33, are some of the most precious words of Jesus Words of reassurance, words of comfort, words of hope, words of encouragement. One of the great and precious promises of our Saviour. And they're words that we need to. And within this one verse is an invitation to faith this morning. So let's read together. John 16, verse 33. Here it is. Jesus says, I... I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. A great and a precious promise. In fact, two promises. Two promises that come in two halves of the verse, and they're going to be the points or the headings or, the, or the, the standout things that we need to take home from this verse this morning. Two things. There's the promise of trouble, and there's the promise of victory. And we're going to study those things together this morning. So let's begin with that first one. The promise of trouble. The beginning of verse 33. Well, really, in the middle of verse 33, he, Jesus says, in the world you will have tribulation. And maybe you think, what kind of promise is that? I do. But the Bible is not, uh, it doesn't glass over the horrors and the hopelessness in the world around us. You know, if you read your Bible regularly from cover to cover, you will find that you will wince quite a lot at the hardships and the heartache that the Bible portrays. But it is always honest and frank with us about what we can expect from this life during our days on earth. You could go to somewhere like Ecclesiastes 11, verse 8, 
where the, the preacher in Ecclesiastes says, if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in all of them, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. So here in verse 33, in our first promise of trouble or tribulation, depending on which uh, translation you're reading, Jesus is clear on the realities of life in a fallen world. He's, he's crystal clear. He's not sugarcoating anything, and he's not prepared to lie to us, nor is he really being subtle. He promises tribulation. He promises trouble. He says, life is going to be hard. The days of darkness will be many. Following me is going to be difficult. Elsewhere, he says, it's, it's like taking up your cross and following him. So going to follow Jesus is going to be difficult. The Bible teaches it, and if we're honest with our own lives, our experience confirms it. Now, what does he mean by trouble and tribulation? Because that's a helpful thing to know as well, I think. Well, the, the Greek word can actually refer to a variety of different kinds of things that we face in this world. So it would include things that Peter mentioned the other week when he preached from 2 Corinthians 12, trials, afflictions, persecutions, and sufferings. It includes those things. But it also includes everything that you might expect under the category of the word trouble. So it might be disease, sickness, death, accidents that happen, financial hardships that strike, relational brokenness that we endure, the loss of a job, or infertility, or divorce. And these trials and tribulations and troubles can be caused by sin, they can be caused by the world around us. They could be caused by other people towards us. They could be caused by Satan. And in some cases, they could be self-inflicted. So tribulation and troubles, when we read the promise, you will have trouble in this world, it just about includes anything and everything that you can think of and that many of us are struggling with this morning here at Grace Church. Verse 33 is a promise of Trouble, And in saying, you will have tribulation, Jesus says that these things are inevitable. Sadly, as difficult as that might be, and that's probably one of the hardest and most difficult truths to come to terms with in the entire Bible. Troubles are inevitable. But what Jesus is saying here in the promise of tribulation, he's not saying, now listen, you know, perhaps given the statistics given your, the size of the population, given the demographics, given your own personal circumstances, and given the laws of probability, it might be 50-50 as to whether you'll have trouble or not. He says to us, in effect, trouble is going to come knocking at your door. At some point, on one day, perhaps on many days, trouble will come knocking on your door. And it is important to recognize it's also important to recognize that Jesus is, is, is not here in this verse promising that life is just going to be one continual, miserable uh, age of suffering and difficulty and trouble. Like somehow Jesus is not announcing that your life is going to be Friday the 13th forever. Like somehow Groundhog Day is just going to keep reoccurring. He's not saying that. There are many wonderful things about life and the, and the Bible speaks to those things too. And neither is he saying that our experience will all be equal. In the good providence of God, some of us will suffer more than others. 
and I don't know why. And some of us will have worse trials than others, and I don't know why. So just be careful here. Jesus is not saying that everybody is Job, who suffered serious disaster after serious tragedy after serious affliction. But what he is promising is that trials are inevitable in some form or other. They will come to us, each and every one of us. So we should be ready. Now, have you ever thought, go back to that Thursday night before the cross in that upper room in Jerusalem where, where Jesus is making these words public to his disciples. Why would he, on the night before his death, go out of his way to tell his disciples that trials are inevitable? Wouldn't the loving thing be to keep that bit of difficult information to himself? Wouldn't a policy of ignorance is bliss be better for us all? And yet, Jesus doesn't promise us trouble so that we would be scared of the world, so that we would be fearful of the world around us, so that we would go around living as pessimists, you know, a kind of glass half full, Eeyore kind of, everything is miserable. He's not warning us either so that we're constantly walking around paranoid, looking over our shoulder, waiting for the sky to fall in, waiting for the worst thing that could possibly happen to strike us down. That's not his intention in sharing these words with us, but actually his promise is paradoxical because it's helpful and hopeful. Even though trials and tribulations and struggles are hard and and the struggle is real and there's no use pretending otherwise... And even though warnings about troubles are hard to hear, most of us might now be wishing that we'd stayed at home and watched the stream so that we could switch it off. Because who wants to spend their Sunday morning hearing about troubles? But the promise of tribulation is helpful and hopeful because there's always something comforting about knowing. You know, when we find ourselves experiencing weakness, and insults, and hardships, and persecutions, and calamities, as as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12. This promise of Jesus reassures us that what is happening to us is not bad luck. It's not karma. It's not the freaky result of fate. Nor is it, as Peter will write in 1 Peter 4.22, nor is it something that should surprise us. He shares these words with us because he wants us to know And he wants us to experience this comfort. Once you know that trouble is coming, you no longer need to be troubled by trouble. Now that's a tongue twister, isn't it? So let me say it again. His purpose here is to help us to see that once we know that trouble is coming, we no longer need to be troubled by trouble. In fact, Jesus is doing a couple of things here, isn't he, in this promise. He's reminding us that he's sovereign. He knows. He knows the future. He knows what's going to happen. And in fact, not just that he knows, he's in control of all of those things too. Knowing all things. Working all things. So he's reminding us of his sovereignty. You will have trouble. I know about it. And in fact, it's not that I just know about it. I'm in control of it. And once you know that trouble is coming and that Jesus is sovereign and he's in control of it, We no longer need to be troubled by trouble. But secondly, he's also managing our expectations. He's he's doing something that we desperately need. We need our expectations managing. 
Because how many of us wake up every morning, and we might not say this to ourselves, but we've been convinced by the world or our own flesh or our own hearts and our own heads that we can live a problem-free life. Now, we might not believe it, but sometimes we live like that. And so Jesus, in this promise, he comes to us and he says to us, listen, listen, brothers and sisters, you live in a fallen world. It is broken. It's deeply marred by sin. It's hostile to the gospel. And you're following a saviour who suffered immensely. And you read and you let your life be governed by a book that from the very first few pages to the very end is filled with countless stories of how God's people suffered and experienced great troubles. Don't bury your heads in the sand. Be watchful and ready. And so this morning, the promise of tribulation is supposed to be good for us. Because as much as we might want to put our fingers in our ears and ignore the words of Jesus right now in this verse, if we listen rightly to him, this promise can be liberating and freeing for us. How? Well, because it will free us from the little bit of prosperity gospel that dwells within each of our hearts. Perhaps more than we're willing to admit. Who of us, which of us, hasn't had this thought at some point? Maybe this week, maybe last week, maybe this year, maybe last year. And we think, I'm a Christian. I'm following Jesus. Why is this terrible thing happening to me? I guess I can't be doing it right. I guess this whole Christian life thing, maybe that's not for me because my life is falling apart. And the promise of tribulation frees us to come to God and to come to one another and say, my life is hard right now. I'm experiencing trouble. I'm hurting. Help. And Jesus here wants us to recognize that trouble is a normal, ordinary, expected part of life in general and of the Christian life specifically. And if we recognize that, that it's a normal, ordinary, expected part of the Christian life, it will allow us to come to God and it will allow us to come to one another, alongside one another, to comfort and to care for each other as we go through these things. We can come to one another like Paul comes to us in Romans chapter 8 and he says, let me remind you that you are living in a world, in a creation that has been subjected to futility. And yet it has been subjected to futility in hope. There is hope that the creation itself will be set free from bondage to decay and to corruption when the sons of God are revealed. And so yes, on the one hand, Paul says in Romans 8, there is deep groaning now as we wait for the completion of our redemption. But there is a, it's a groaning that is hope infused because it's full of anticipation of what comes next. And that's where this verse goes next as well. John 16, verse 33. Because Jesus doesn't stop just at the promise of trouble. He also promises victory. And that's our second heading this morning, the promise of victory. So yes, troubles are inevitable. But troubles are temporary. They won't always be there. Read verse 33 with me again. 
in the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. And here's the second promise. I have overcome the world. Trials are inevitable, but they're temporary, like any storm. Like Hurricane Ida that we saw hit the US last week or the week before. Like any storm, it will eventually end. The, the rain will stop, the clouds will part, and the sun will shine again. It's a tough world, but see what Jesus says. I have overcome the world. And he wants to see that these two kind of promises, are not that they stand in opposition together, that's not quite what I mean, but they confront one another. Because Jesus says, in the world you'll have trouble, but I have overcome the world. And there's so much that's packed into these few verses that are represented in our English Bibles. The word overcome literally means to conquer. So Jesus says, I have conquered the world. He is supremely victorious over all that the world has. All the enemies, all the threats, all the troubles, all the obstacles, all the opposition that the, that the world encapsulates and that it could throw at us. Jesus has conquered all of those things. And I, actually, the, the promise is emphatic. It, it says, if you were to read it in the original, it would say, I and none other, I and I alone have conquered. So no one else can offer us what Jesus can offer us. No one else can do for us what Jesus has done for us. No one else can conquer the world the way that we need the world to be conquered. But he also says this, if you notice, he speaks in the past tense. I have overcome. So sure, so certain, so unquestionable is Jesus' victory that he speaks as, ha as though it has already happened. And this is, if you remember, Thursday night. This is before he's been arrested. This is before he's been tried in a kangaroo court. This is before he's been crucified. This is before he's been laid in a tomb. This is before he has risen. He was so sure of his victory that he describes it here before everything happens as having already happened. I and I alone have already conquered. And the tense as well also says to us, I have overcome. It speaks of an abiding victory, a, a lasting victory, a completed victory, a finished victory, a victory that can't be reversed or overturned, a victory that is, has never and will never be in doubt. For football fans, there's no VAR that's going to check whether he's got it right or not. Whether it was it, wasn't it, I don't know, let's check it, let's spend hours pouring over it just in case there's a little slip that we missed. No, I have overcome. Verse 33 is an assertion of the sovereignty of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, the trustworthiness of Jesus, and the faithfulness of Jesus to his people. He faces us up, he faces his disciples, he faces us up to the realities of life in a fallen world while in the very same breath assuring them and us of the reality of who he is, of what he will do for us in the 72 hours that lay ahead of him. 
And just as Jesus, as he was facing the greatest possible personal storm that any human being in all of history has ever faced, that he was going to the cross to face the red-hot wrath of God and pay the penalty for the sins of those he came to save, he invites his disciples, weak and fearful, to trust him. In this second half of the verse, in this promise of victory, he basically draws near to us and he says, listen, listen to me again, brothers and sisters, listen. However great the threats, however great the trouble that you might face, and and it will be inevitable and it will come and it will be difficult, do not lose heart. Do not be afraid. Trust me, for I and I alone have conquered. I and I alone have secured the ultimate and the decisive and the eternal and the everlasting victory over the very thing that you feel conquered by in your life. The very thing that you can't deal with, the very suffering that has brought you low, the very thing that is holding you down, the very thing that is crushing you, the very thing of this fallen world that feels like it is destroying you inch by inch. I have conquered. I've beaten it. I have overcome. And we know the story as it unfolds from that Thursday night that Jesus would go to the cross and that through his life, his death, his resurrection and then later his ascension, he has conquered. And he now reigns supreme over everything in this world, even the things that you and I are suffering from today. He reigns supreme over them and he is working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Now, here's something brilliant about the second half of this promise. Let's read it again so that we can just take it in. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Full stop. Here's the brilliant thing. Jesus doesn't come and say, I've overcome the world, and you can too. That wouldn't really be very good news for us. Anybody watch the tennis last night? Yeah, it's great. Emma Raducanu, she won the US Open. It was fantastic. She did it as a complete outsider. She was like, what, back in July, she was doing her A-level. She was 338th in the world, and now she's a Grand Slam winner at the age of 18. Now, imagine if she walked in here on a Sunday morning, and she said to us, with the trophy in hand, I have overcome, and you can too. Just grab a racket, let's go. You'd say, you're a nutter. If you see me play tennis, it's like I've got no arms. It's not very good. It's not good news. Or imagine if, a, if you're doing your exams or you're at work or, or, or a, and a superior student or a superior colleague performs perfectly in their exam or performs perfectly in their appraisal and they come and say to, to you, well, I did well and so could you. That doesn't help us. That just brings a a sharper sense of hopelessness. But here Jesus says, I have overcome. Full stop. I have faced your enemy and I've won. I've vanquished him. I fought your battle on the battleground or where it needed to be fought in 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 human experience. I did it as a man. I fought where you must fight and I have routed the foe I've done that which you could never do. 
I've done it. I've overcome the world. So abide in me, and my victory will be your victory. Look at what he says at the beginning of verse 33. I have said these things to you. And these things means everything from, verse, from John chapter 14, verse 1, where he began the farewell discourse with these words, let your hearts not be troubled, believe in God and believe in me. He said all of these things from that point to this point, so that in me, notice those words, so that in me you may have peace. This is an invitation that still rings out through the ages. This wasn't just an invitation to those disciples on that Thursday night. This is for us and for anybody and everybody who is caught up in the troubles of living in a fallen world. This is an invitation to you and me this morning. And it is a promise, not that that suffering will just one day end, but that one day it will be reversed. It's a promise of victory. It's a promise to redeem. It's a promise to turn things around. It's a promise to set right that which is wrong. It's a promise to fix that which is broken. It's a promise that through his finished work on the cross, out of that pain and that sorrow will emerge a joy that the world cannot offer and can never take away. The promise is that we will share in the victory of the victorious conquering son who has conquered sin and death and broken the power of the evil one. It's a promise that the last word does not lie with sin or Satan or the world. It does not lie in atrocity or tragedy or rebellion or despair or darkness. The last word lies with the risen, living, exalted, victorious Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no safer hands to be in than in the nail-pierced and scarred hands of our Saviour. And so this promise of verse 33 calls us to lift up our eyes, even in the midst of struggle, even in the midst of difficulty, especially in the midst of difficulty and struggle, to see Jesus immensely powerful, supremely capable, unflinchingly willing completely trustworthy, utterly committed, absolutely faithful, totally victorious. Jesus has triumphed and his people will triumph too, but the path to glory of a triumphant kingdom is through tribulation and troubles. So John will write in Revelation, Revelation 5 verse 12, worthy as the as the, the saints and the, the elders and the angelic beings gather around the throne, John re- hears them singing with a loud voice, worthy, worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and blessing. And to him who sits on the throne, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He has triumphed, but the path to the triumphant kingdom is through the trouble of this present age. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Take 
heart, Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation, but I have overcome the world. Now the question that remains, particularly if you're suffering right now, how long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? And the reality is, under the good providence of God, everybody's situation is different, and I don't know. For some of us today, whatever you are going through, your trial may just last a few days. For others, it might be months. For some, it might be years. Perhaps for a few, it might be something that we endure until the Lord calls us home. But that does not change our hope. Someday, whether in this life, whether it's when Jesus returns or when he calls us home, our trials will end and they will be followed by a God-given joy that will last forever as we share in the victory and in the spoils of all that the victorious conquering Christ has done and won. But until then, he says this, in me you may have peace. Take heart. It's a peace that comes from being united to him and abiding in him. It's a peace that comes because of him and through him and in him. The Prince of Peace says to us, in me you can have peace. Take heart. I read this this morning just in my, um, Claire and I are reading uh, Paul Tripp's New Morning Mercies, great little devotional book. And this came out September the 12th. He says this, you are constantly trying to make sense of the situations and experiences of your life. Every one of us is an archaeologist. We dig through the mounds of our own little lives to try and make sense of the civilizations that have shaped us. The way that we react and react, act and react to things that God has placed in our lives. And we have silent conversations with ourselves. In those silent private conversations that you have with yourself, please remember the grace of God. Tell yourself that you're not alone, that you're not left to the small batch of your own resources, and that you have been graced with everything that you need right here, right now, to be what God has called you to be and to do what God has chosen for you to do. When you remember the grace of God, you are also reminded of his presence and his promises. Ultimately, human rest is not found in measuring the size of your righteousness and your strength and your wisdom against the size of what you are facing. No. Rest is found when you compare the size of what you are facing to the person, the presence, the promises, the character, the power, and the grace of, the, of one who is with you wherever you go. What is God's best gift of grace to you today? The answer is easy, himself. He knew that our need was so great that the only gift that would meet our need would not be a thing or an it, but a him. He willingly gives us himself. Take heart, Jesus says. I know you're beaten down, I know you're weak, I know you're suffering, I know you're hurting, I know you're having troubles, but be of good cheer, as the King James Version says, for I 
and I alone have overcome the world. Let's pray.